0: I don't know about most of you, but it, the feeling of materialism that often surrounds the season, for me, can become, in a sense, the damper on it. Does that make sense? Does the, the stuff, I'm kind of slick when it's all done, or all the stuff's open, that there's a sense in which you realize it's a lesser joy. You realize that it's not really what it was all about. And I thought to ask you this question this morning, how did you do this year? Because I, I, I can't help but think that for every Christian, the desire of our heart is to have Christ at the center. I mean, if, if you peel it back and, and address it purely from what we know to be true, we know that at the center of this season is Christ. Christ. And we know that the, the greatest and most lasting, sustainable satisfaction and joy is found in knowing and keeping Jesus at the center of our lives. Not seasonally, but daily. But that is the, if you will, that is the struggle of the Christian experience, isn't it? To keep what is most important at the center. I want you to turn with me this morning to First Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, a letter that the Apostle Paul writes around 63 to 65 A.D. You're 30 years after, or 30 plus years, really 35 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Paul's writing to Timothy, who is a young man that he mentored into the ministry. And as Paul writes First Timothy, he has a concern for Timothy that is similar to the concern that we wrestle with in seasons like this when we are seeking to focus on Christ but are tempted to be distracted. He is a concern that the church of Christ would drift away from that which is central and get focused on issues. Folks, that's a danger for the church in every generation. It's easy for us to get caught up in good issues but we may become so captivated by them that the gospel of Jesus Christ loses its place of centrality and importance in the church. Same thing happens to us in marriage, doesn't it? Our mate is to be our central love, the one we adore, then kids happen. Right? And busyness happens, and life happens, and job happens, and financial needs happen. And what is central is, in a sense, kicked to the side. For the church of Jesus Christ, at the time that Paul is writing the church in Ephesus, the danger was this. The danger was that the church was drifting back towards rules and regulations as a means of sustaining a relationship with God. We call that legalism. Thinking that God is encouraged to love me more because I am performing well in my life. Paul is dreadfully afraid of that tendency. Why? Because it necessarily decentralizes the cross and puts the emphasis on us and our performance and how we're doing. When God wants us to put the focus on Him and what He has done for us through His Son Jesus Christ that is applied in our lives daily by the work of the Spirit. He wants the gospel to be central to the Christian experience. And so if you would just look at this real quick, verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul says, Timothy, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine or to devote themselves to endless myths and endless genealogies that promote controversies rather than God's work, that is the gospel, which is by faith. Okay, so the early church wrestled with tendencies to let legalism, law-keeping, causes... Decentralize the work of Jesus. OK, When we talk about this well when we go through this text, in, it, it's fascinating, because if you were to read from verse three down through verse 20, you would realize that Paul's emphasis is on keeping the gospel central, on addressing this danger of false teaching that would distract from the centrality of Christ. That's his primary focus and concern. But in the middle of this discourse from 3 to 20, he does a a detour in verses 12, going down through verse 17, a detour that is Paul's personal celebration of the good news of Jesus. Because when he talks about things that distract us from the centrality and glory of Jesus, okay, Paul begins to seek to draw their attention back to what is central, and that is the good news of Christ. So he can't talk about false teaching without thinking about the need to exalt Jesus. So in the middle of this 17-verse you know, section, he sandwiches from verse 12 through 17 a personal discussion about how the gospel of Christ has deeply affected his life and why it should be central to every Christian church and to the life of every Christian person so it's a detour that really is a bit of a a statement of praise, a statement of doxology, a statement of personal testimony, a very intimate statement, if you will, of personal testimony about how the gospel has affected him. Tucked in the middle of this discourse, in verse 15, you find this statement, verse 15, which is probably the most familiar verse from this text. Paul says, "...here is a trustworthy, reliable saying that deserves full acceptance." Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. What is Paul saying? I think this is what Paul's saying. He's answering a question. The question is why is Christmas necessary? Okay? Why was the coming of Christ essential? And the answer to that question is. Very simply put, if I was just to summarize it very succinctly, the answer is this. Christmas is necessary because I am a sinner. Christmas is necessary because I am a sinner who by my sinfulness is alienated from a holy and righteous God. I want us to read verses 12 through 17 this morning and you'll see how verse 15 fits in the middle of this statement. Paul says, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given me strength, that He considered me faithful, appointing me to this service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. And then this doxology burst forth. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. A very powerful statement. Central to it is a statement about why Christmas is necessary. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I am the worst. Now, if I was to summarize this five-word statement, Jesus came to save sinners, I, I would have to say something like this about this gospel statement. The gospel that he talks about is true. Paul says in verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. It is true. It is reliable. You can and should build your life upon this truth. Secondly, he says this. The offer of this gospel is universal. Paul says it deserves full acceptance without restriction. Everyone should respond to this good news of Jesus Christ. And the third thought that emerges is this. It's application. Christ came to save sinners. The application of that statement is exceedingly and intensely personal. Okay? So it is true, its offer is universal, and its application is very, very personal. So in verse 12, Paul would say, He considered me faithful and appointed me to this work of service. Verse 14, he says, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul responded personally to the love of God that moved in his direction through Jesus Christ. So, at the center of this text is a statement, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Okay, that is... Gospel in summary that emerges in this passage of Scripture. Why is it important? I think it's important for this reason. This statement about the Gospel encourages us to keep the Gospel central in our lives because Christian hope springs from the Gospel hope for our daily lives, hope that we can change, hope that people around us can be affected for eternity, springs from this simple statement that captures the Christmas season. Jesus came to save sinners. Okay, that is the heart of the season that we find ourselves in the midst of. This statement offers to us this morning three gifts and then one simple response. Okay, this statement, Christ came to save sinners. Offers three gifts of hope. And I just want to share these with you as a meditation, in a sense, as a reminder this morning. The first hope that springs from this passage of Scripture is this. God can change the least likely people. Okay? God's grace can change the least likely person. Everybody probably in this room, has a list of people that they at some level think are beyond hope. Someone that has wounded you. Someone that has hurt you. Someone that has made your work-life difficult. You could go on and on. Everybody has a list of impossible people or least likely people to be affected by the gospel of grace. At the top of that list, you know what Paul does? He writes his name. He writes his name. The hope of the Gospel for Paul was this, that God can change the person who is least likely to experience change. Why? Because in the eyes of many people, Paul was an impossible person. Paul was the guy that if you heard that he had been converted, you would have said, I doubt it. I doubt it. We have a tendency to be skeptical when God moves into the life of a difficult person, to produce lasting, permanent change by the Gospel. But it is a glorious thing to observe. If you think back with me to Acts chapter 7, and I'll just read these passages, because they describe the Apostle Paul, whose name at this time in his life is Saul. He is standing by, keeping, if you will, guard, over the martyrdom of the first martyr in the early church. His name is Stephen. Okay? And... Paul is there giving hearty consent to the stoning of Stephen. I want you to think about this couple of verses. As Stephen is being stoned, Acts chapter 7 and verse 58 says this. It says, meanwhile, the witnesses, that is those that had condemned Stephen, and now we're in the process of stoning him for preaching the gospel of Christ. They laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 8, it says, Saul was there, or verse 1 of chapter 8 says, Saul was there giving hearty approval to his martyrdom. Okay, so a man who is violently opposed to the good news of Jesus, has now been changed by the good news of Jesus. The message of hope that springs from the gospel is that God can take the person in your life who is least likely to be changed and bring about in his life a radical transformation. Most of you in this room have probably heard the name Michael Vick. He's currently quarterback for the Eagles. I can't tell you that I'm happy about that. Okay, from a personal perspective. Okay? Because Michael Vick was convicted of very abusive behavior, ended up imprisoned, but came out of prison with the proclamation. I am a different man. You know what the response of most people in our world is to that kind of a statement? Yeah, right. <laughs> Frank, you're exactly right. Yeah, right. Okay? It's we tend to be skeptical of change and people that are unlikely to change. We don't think that it can happen. And I understand that. The apostle Paul, when he was converted, God went to a man named Ananias and said, Ananias, I want you to go to the apostle Paul. He's a chosen instrument for me. You know what Paul's response was? Or Ananias's response was? I know Saul. He's persecuting the church. He is responsible for the destruction of the body of Christ. He was a least likely man. And when God called Ananias to go to him, Ananias' first response was not, sure, I'll be glad to. His first response was, God, do you know who he is? And God had to assure Ananias, in a vision, that Paul was now a chosen instrument. What does it mean? It means that one of the gifts of hope that emerges from the gospel is that God can take the least likely candidate in your life for salvation. And he can change their life. Okay? The person that you fear the person that you despise, the person who has wounded you. It may be the person that you're married to. It may be the person who raised you that you just can't receive and accept. God wants to give you a gift of hope. The thing that you can't change, He can change. The person that you can't, you can't imagine their life being different. God can and is able. He can't. And is able. So one of the strong gifts that emerges out of Christian hope is that God can change anybody's life. Now here's the promise that I hope you know personally. He can change you. He can change you. Paul was the least likely. Look at verse 13. Paul says, God appointed me to the place of ministry even though See, he's very self conscious here. Even though once I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. All right, that's Paul's resume. People knew me as a violent man, as a persecutor, as a blasphemer. I was changed. So, folks, don't let regret over past sin keep you from the hope of change that is present in the gospel of Christ. He died on the cross to set you free. He came to save sinners. And that statement about sinners is unqualified, except that Paul, in a sense, here's what he's doing. He's giving the most extreme example of sinfulness in himself. I was the worst, he says. So that we would understand that everyone between the Apostle Paul and the most righteous person on the planet is within the realm and sphere of those that God desires to save. It's why when someone like Michael Vick comes out and says, I have experienced a change, coached by a Christian man in discipleship named Tony Dungy. Folks, do you understand this? The person who was a disgrace on television for years may really be changed. I'm not weighing in on that today. I'm just saying it is possible. The least likely candidate can experience the most dramatic God-glorifying change. So the first gift of hope that comes to us today is this. God can change the least likely person. Hence, Paul would say, of that gospel, I am not ashamed. Meaning what? Here's what Paul said. For the rest of my life, I will boldly and confidently share the gospel of Christ with least likely people, with the hope that the God who saved me can save them. See, folks. We need, sometimes we need to go back and remember who we were, what God saved us from, and how He wants to use us to seek the least. Like Jesus came to save sinners. If you see yourself as one, you are, you are in the you are in the sphere of His invitation. He wants you to respond to this wonderful message. The second message that emerges here, and it, it's kind of tied into what we're talking about already. God can rescue and use anyone. Paul's argument is from the greater sinner to the lesser sinner. If Paul can be dramatically and unbelievably transformed, so can you. But here's the question that comes up. Why would God choose someone like the Apostle Paul with this horrific resume? Standing by, heartily in agreement, as stones are hurtled at the head of a man named Stephen, who was being killed because he dared to proclaim the good news of Christ. He could stand there in hearty, full, contented approval. That's a cold person, folks. That's a cold person. That's a hard person. That's a violent person. Why? Why? Paul, notice what he says in verse 16. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. Mercy meaning God took away my judgment and He gave me grace and hope and forgiveness. For that very reason. What reason, Paul? Because I was the worst of sinners. God chose, folks, please understand this. God chose the most prominent sinner to be the most prominent missionary in his church. That's God. That's not what you and I would do. That's God. Because he wants us to realize that one of the the gifts of hope that emerges out out of the gospel is that God can rescue and use anyone. If Paul can be so dramatically and unbelievably changed and transformed, then so can you. Paul's sinfulness, the depth of his sin, and the evidence of God's grace in his life, is the reason that God chose Paul. So that his life, verse 16, would become an example to a lost and dying world. Notice what he says. Christ Jesus, that he might display his unlimited patience in me as an example for those who would believe on him. And folks, what that means is this. Anyone who was wrestling with their sinfulness, wondering if God's grace was sufficient, if God could change them, could look at the Apostle Paul and find a gift of hope. Because here's what Paul's saying. So that in me, he might give an example. That if God could save Paul, then God can save me. Does that make sense if you think about that? If God could rescue Paul and use his life, then He can save you and use your life for His glory. God saved Paul to use his life. And please understand this this morning. If you know Jesus, please know He saved you to use your life. He saved you to use your life. The last thought that emerges as a gift of hope is this. God can change my life in the present. Okay? We, we have a view of the gospel that is often focused on the final outcome. Okay? That when we trust Jesus Christ, and rightfully so, when we trust Jesus Christ, all of our sin is washed away. And the hope of eternal life, life with God, avoiding separation from Him in hell, that hope is ours. Alright, that's a gift that God gives us. The gift of God, the Bible says, is eternal life found in Jesus Christ. But I think this text is making another emphasis. God didn't save Paul and take him out of here. God saved Paul and left him here. So that Paul's life would give continual evidence to the grace of God that not only gives us the hope of eternity, but also gives us hope that our life can be different today. So the third hope, the third gift, is that God can change my life in the present, it affects our current existence. It's fascinating that Paul writes these words 35 years after his conversion. 35 years later, what is he enjoying? He is enjoying the unlimited and unbounded free grace of God that continues to save and change him. You see, we often fall into a pattern of fear. We often fall into a pattern of pessimism about change in our personal life. The Gospel is not only meant to affect our future, it is meant to affect our present. So in John chapter 10, here's what Jesus says. He says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about our life now. So that we, in our present experience, could enjoy the power of God effecting lasting change, delivering us from sin and giving us hope that our life can be used for His glory. And I think in a sense what Paul is saying is that God's presence provides power for change. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, His divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And see, if he can change your eternal destiny and completely reform and restore the life of the Apostle Paul, then Paul is saying, there is hope for everyone listening to my message. The gospel is meant to affect us in the present. Maybe you have caught yourself saying something like this, or you've heard someone say something like this. Perhaps your mate, your kid's a co-worker. I don't don't know who it is in your life. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's me sometimes we drift towards a fatalism. We say something like this. Well, you're just going to have to get used to it because that's just the way I am. That's a struggle that I deal with that's not likely to change. You're going to have to get used to it. You know what that is? That's fatalism. That's not faith. That perspective that that's just the way I am, that there's really no hope of lasting change, that's not from God. That's from the evil one who wants to keep you enslaved to patterns of sinfulness and weakness in relationships. And, and often we as Christians, we buy that. And what I want you to understand this morning is this. The gospel that rescued Paul from, the, from a desperate future in terms of hell and separation from God also rescued and changed his life and allowed his life to be a living example of what God can do. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to receive this gift of hope. The gift of hope is that God's grace can change my life in the present. God's aim in the gospel is to dramatically reform and change our lives. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul puts it this way. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, brand new creation. The old has gone, and a new has come. And that new coming is the result of the gospel of God's grace and power. And So Paul says he came to save sinners, and he continues to save sinners from the devastating effects of sin. It means hope that habits and enslaving sins can be broken in our lives. It means that we can be delivered from anger and bitterness that haunt us. It means that people can be free from addictions to alcoholism, to pornography, to overeating, to watching too much TV. It means that a hurtful lack of love for one's mate can be transformed and exchanged for sensitivity and gentleness. It means that someone's fear of interaction with people, some type of fear of relating to people, can be overcome. It means that a lack of generosity to God's work can change. It means that fear of failure need not hold you in prison, but can be overcome. It means that persistent pessimism can be overcome by the power of God. You see, Paul's life was changed, not for a day, but for the rest of his life. So that his conversion, his change, could be an example to everyone who believes. And an encouragement to the worst sinner that their life can be changed by the power of God. Forever and ever. As we move towards the end of the new year, many of us will think about changes that we need to make. And we'll wonder, should we really seek to make any New Year's resolutions? Because most of them tend to become old resolutions very quickly, don't they? We really Why make any promises? Why make any commitments? Because we have a tendency to do what in regards to our commitments? To fail. Okay? And do you think it's any mistake that our celebration of Christmas, God came to change you, would come right on the heels of a time of year when we tend to be most reflective? We tend to think back and say, as I move into the new year, what would I like to see God change. Don't ask yourself what will I change? Ask yourself what would I like to see God change moving into this year? Take this promise, this Christmas promise. God came to save sinners, to rescue them, not only for eternity, but from sin in the present so that we could live a life that is dramatically different and victorious for the glory of God. So as we move forward, I want to just encourage you To take time to reflect. Think about the changes that you would like to see made in your life. Maybe for some of you here this morning, the change is this. You need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You need to acknowledge before God, I am a sinner destined for separation from God. I need the hope of eternal life. Here's the promise for you. Jesus came to save sinners, and He doesn't care about your past, your reputation, your spiritual resume. He does not care. His blood can cleanse you from all of your sin and give you a truly new year this year coming. He can really change you. That is a glorious hope. And the, the power to change you is the is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the evidence that He is able to save to the uttermost and to change you most utterly and completely. A verse that has been impressed upon my mind in the recent weeks is First John chapter 3 and verse 8. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Think about that. You know, you know what most of us are afraid of? We're afraid of the works of the devil, of enslaving patterns of sin in our lives that tend to sink their tentacles in so far that we fear that change can never happen. This text aims to say to you that if God, could change the Apostle Paul, he then can certainly and will change you if you seek him. See, I think sometimes the question is this, am I willing to commit the time to seeking God in a life-changing way, That is the time that is required to experience lasting change? See, I believe there's hope that God can change your life, that he can change my life. But that hope is secured in the disciplines of the Christian life. That hope is secured and, in a sense, obtained by getting on your knees on a regular basis and seeking God's face. That hope is revealed as you read the Word of God and the Spirit of God applies that to your life. Take this promise the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. Take that promise. Cling to that promise. Live that promise. It's the reason for Christmas, so that we could receive from him powerful gifts of hope that kill fatalism by faith in the promises of God that are ours in Christ. God can change you and will change you if you get serious about seeking him and you come after him by faith. His promise is something like this. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you would not believe. Humble yourself, 1 Peter 5 says, under the mighty hand of God. Come, say, God, I would love to change. I would love to see habits broken this year. I would love to see my love life with my mate restored this year. I would love to see more patience with my kids this year. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Do it on a daily, consistent basis. And watch what God can do. How do we respond to such glorious promises of hope. I think the last thought emerges in verse 17 of this text. Paul, after contemplating that God has so gloriously saved him and made him an example of God's glorious grace, he says, now unto the King Eternal. Not to me, not to Paul. That's what he's saying. Don't think about me. When you look at my life, think of this. I am, in the present tense, verse 15 says, I am the worst of sinners. Here's Paul's progression. Okay, Paul's progression, 1 Corinthians 15, written in 60 A.D. is, I am the least of the apostles. Ephesians chapter 3, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians uh, A.D. 55. A.D. 60, he writes the book of Ephesians. You know what he says? He says, I am the least of the saints. In A.D. 63, 64, he writes this book. You know what he says? I am the chief, the worst, the foremost of sinners. Isn't that amazing? As he grew in Christ, he became more aware of his sinfulness and more aware of the grace and glory of God. So that as he writes about the centrality of the gospel, and as he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, don't let the cross of Christ be pushed out of the center of church life. Keep it at the center. As he says that, what does he do? He drifts off into this discussion of how the cross has affected his life. And he ends that discussion with what? Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Why? <laughs> Paul standing there saying, look, here's the progression. Least of the saints, least of the apostles, worst of sinners. And you know what Paul says? Look at what God has done in my life. It is not owing to my performance. It is not owing to the fact that I am a tenacious Christian. It is owing to the grace of God that was so glorious and abundantly poured out on me in Jesus. And folks, when you understand grace, here's what it will do. It will kill any comparison in terms of performance. That's really what Paul's saying. Paul's saying I refuse to compare myself to anybody else in terms of righteousness. I have the righteousness of Christ. You You know what the gospel does? The gospel changes you. It will kill pride. And it will put a song of praise in your mouth. Because as you see God change you, as you experience his restoring, life-changing grace, you will fall before him on a regular basis saying, God, I praise you for what you have done in my life. You see, the Apostle Paul could easily and gladly say, I am the cheapest of sinners, but I have received mercy. And God's grace was poured out on me abundantly. And I think one of the most fascinating things about Paul's conversion is this. Paul was not having a bad day, longing for God when he was converted. You know what Paul was doing? The Bible says he was breathing out threats against the church. And while he was still hell-bent, literally, He was confronted by the grace of God. You see, folks, here's the thing that amazes me about Paul's life. Paul did not initiate change. God did. God did. You see, in Paul's legalism, what did he become? He became a violent man. In his self-righteousness, he was violent. In the righteousness of Christ, what is he? He's a humble man. Who can freely say, I am the worst of sinners. But I have received mercy. Because religion will always produce a pride of self-righteousness and a critical spirit towards others. The gospel of grace will always produce a growing gratitude that must be expressed. Now this morning, here's the challenge I would give you. God has given every Christian in this room a story. You have a story of God's grace. You know what Paul did with his story? He shared it freely. You know what we should do with ours? We should share it freely. I was recently in a setting with a couple of people from our church. And one of the young men in our church was sharing how God has been at work in his life. In a very humble and grateful way, saying, this is what God did for me. This is how God changed me. Sharing it with someone that is a seeker, who is seeking to come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. My heart was touched. You know what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, I will freely share my story because God saved me so that he could use me. Folks, for every one of you this morning, change is possible. The least likely person can be converted by the grace of God. The least likely. You may see yourself as that person today. God wants to shed his grace upon you and save you from your sin. And if he has saved you, he has given you a story that he wants you to take out into the world around you to the praise of his glory and grace. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together.